Well, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. My name is Father Matt. I'm one of the rectors here. Today is Trinity Sunday, the first Sunday after Pentecost, in which the church celebrates the unity of God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we see in our readings today. The themes of fathers and sons, of Yahweh calling Israel son, of Yahweh calling Jesus son. There's an entire sermon on the corporate personality of Jesus, how he gathers up the history and the narrative of the Jewish people, and in doing that becomes the true Israel. But I can't preach that this morning. Ask Spencer about it if you want to know more. (laughs) One peculiarity of this Sunday, Holy Trinity Sunday, is that it's a feast day dedicated to a doctrine. Most feast days are dedicated to people or historical events, parts of the redemptive drama of God, but this is dedicated to a doctrine. So sermons typically focus on trying to get the doctrine right. Explain the Trinity so as to assuage the priest's fears that 94% of their congregations have no idea how one being in three persons works. Or can even remember the formulation, right? Is it three beings, one person, or three gods, one Jesus, one love, one heart, let's get together and feel all right? I know it's difficult. It's tricky. So let's just, in two minutes, say together, Arianism is no bueno, (laughs) even if you don't know what that is. But then let's do something more together this morning than just making sure we all leave with rudimentary, rudimentary language for how to describe the Trinity that we'll forget after lunch. Because I want to contend that the Trinity doesn't exist so we can explain it. That's not what the Trinity is for. That's not how we believe in the Trinity either. The Trinity exists as a source of life, as the ground of our being, or as Dr. Walter Gaffney translates it today, translates the word uh, Lord as the womb of life, womb of creation. I wait for the womb of creation, my soul waits, and in her word I hope. Israel, hope in the mother of creation. Womb of life, my heart is not lifted up, nor my eyes exalted. I have soothed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. Israel, hope in the wellspring of life. This is the good news of the Trinity. Today we proclaim that Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the womb of creation, exists as a source of our very life, as a community of love, conceiving, gestating, and growing a new creation. Receive your commission, church, to be the vanguard of a new world order centered on love and justice, and life. Our text from Gospel of Matthew today is what's commonly referred to as the Great Commission. Yeah? Sound familiar? If you grew up as a Christian in the 20th century in the West, at some point, this text was used to stir up your teen mania so you could acquire the fire with passion for evangelism. Let's go! Let's go! (laughs) 
probably should have had a trigger warning before I told that joke. <laughs> a few issues to discuss here before we get to this new world order. The first is the Great Commission has been used in antichrist ways to commit and justify colonial crimes of exploitation, genocide, pillaging, enslavement, abuse, rape, you name it, the Great Commission has been pimped out for it. We denounce that today. Secondly, there's good evidence that the first three centuries of the church, the early Christians, took the Great Commission not as a charge to everybody, but as a charge to the apostles. It's interesting. We hear very few sermons, like we typically hear in the modern West, about charge out there and make, you know, make Christians of the heathens. The early church assumed that the apostles had succeeded in doing what they were charged to do. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. The, the New Testament, the way that Luke Acts tells the story of Jesus, the way that Paul describes his ministry wanting to go to Spain in the book of Rome, or I'm sorry, in the book of, to the Romans, there is this sense that the New Testament authors even had this imagination of uh, the gospels going forth and expanding to the ends of the known world. So it, it took centuries, thank you, it took centuries before the early church used the Great Commission the way we do as a summons to evangelism. So what is the Great Commission if it isn't that? Well, I want to suggest that the Great Commission isn't a get out there and ask people if they know where they're going if they died tonight. Ra, ra, shish, kumba. But rather, it's a prophetic declaration of a new world order. Centered on the political economy of the kingdom of God, new creation. What we call the Great Commission is the announcement of a new world order. New authorities, new life, and how it's to be constituted. And I want to suggest we know this because of how the setting and the scene of the Great Commission, uh, how it's been used before Matthew's Gospel. Did you know that this was a setting and a scene that was alive in the popular imagination of the people who read this Gospel? Here's Livy, The History of Rome, Book 1. This was written about 20 years before Jesus was born, and it was a popular history of the Book of Rome that people knew and read about and was like in the cultural kind of waters people swam in. Listen to the story about Romulus and what happened to him, the person who founded Rome, the first king of Rome. After these immortal achievements, Romulus held a review of his army at the Capre Palace in the Campus Martius. A violent thunderstorm suddenly arose and enveloped the king in so dense a cloud that he was quite invisible to the assembly. From that hour, Romulus was no longer seen on earth. At, at length, after a few had taken the initiative, the whole of those present hailed Romulus as a god, the son of God, the king and father of the city of Rome. They put up supplications for his grace and favor and prayed that he would be propitious to his children and save and protect them. 
I believe, however, that even then there were some who secretly hinted that he had been torn limb from limb by the senators. A tradition to this effect, though certainly a very dim one, has filtered down to us. Now, Proculus Julius, a man whose authority was a senator, uh, a man whose authority had weight in matters of even the gravest importance, seeing how deeply the community felt the loss of the king and how incensed they were against the senators, came forward into the assembly and said, at the break of dawn today, the father of this city suddenly descended from heaven and appeared to me. Whilst thrilled with awe, I stood wrapped before him in deepest reverence, praying that I might be pardoned for gazing upon him. Go, he said. Tell the Romans that it is the will of heaven that my Rome should be the head of all the world. Let them henceforth cultivate the arts of war and let them know assuredly and hand down the knowledge to posterity that no human might can withstand the arms of Rome. Here ends the reading. Do you see some similarities here? The founder and king of Rome was taken away on a cloud to heaven. Romulus hailed as God, a son of God, and they prayed to him. There were some there who, wasn't he torn limb to limb? We could say they doubted. They doubted. And then this senator, go, tell the Romans, it's the will of heaven that my Rome should be head of the world. Let them henceforth cultivate the arts of war. This was a charge to send forth the carriers of what it meant to be Rome into the world with the instructions to teach how to kill. How to expand Rome with a rubber stamp legitimacy from the gods. It's the will of heaven, remember. God wants you to kill as many as you can in the name of Rome. You think it's a coincidence it's this similar? <laughs> I don't. I don't. I think Matthew chooses to end his gospel with this scene about the f that would have called to mind the founding of the greatest empire his readers had ever known to serve as a, as a backdrop, as a contrast, and expound upon what is Jesus doing here in this great commission. Because today we proclaim the good news. That the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this womb of creation, exists as the very source of our life. It exists as a community of love that's conceiving and gestating and growing new creation. So receive your commission, church. Go. Be a vanguard of this new world order centered on love and justice and life. Because Jesus, not Caesar, is the Son of God. Amen? Because Jesus wants to communicate here not simply this spiritual religion that lives somewhere abstractly, 
But we see not only in the culture where religion and politics are mixed together, you couldn't separate the two, but Matthew chooses to tell Jesus' story in a way that we can't miss it. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead restructures who we are, how we live, how we make sense of our life. There's a new claim on the world that's in contrast to those who know to make the art of war. Notice where Romulus says art of war, Jesus says baptize and teach. Instead of killing others by conquering, Jesus says you're to initiate them into the womb of life. Baptize them. You know, there's a whole other sermon on this too. But you know rabbis debated if Gentile proselytes who got baptized to enter Judaism... They debated whether or not those proselytes could marry their biological mothers. Why would they do that? Well, they did that because they believed so fundamentally that baptism was cutting off one life and beginning another. That they mused that because you have gone under the waters of baptism and come up a new person that you no longer were connected to your human biological mother. It reordered things so strongly. Now, that's the cost, I think, of growing up and living in Christendom. Our baptisms are endorsed by the Roman Empire, (laughs) right? Nobody got killed for being baptized in the U.S., Don't get me wrong, your baptism's valid. I'm not saying it's invalid. I don't want anybody leaving here saying that pastor said Arianism wasn't bad, but my baptism was bad. That's that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, though, that baptism was a symbol of apocalyptic incontinuity. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's inaugurating a new social order centered on his teachings. Obey my teachings. What what are his teachings? Well, it's summed up in love. And Jesus taught about righteousness or justice. And this love and justice, it undoes and supersedes the art of war teaching of Rome. So this is how we believe the Trinity on Trinity Sunday. The teachings of Jesus constitute a new way of being human, a new world order. Our baptism indicates we've died to how the art of war works. We're no longer into retribution and violence and vindictiveness, exploitation, abusive, oppressive violence. As we learn to live in and participate in justice, as we draw our life from the life of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we establish Christ's new world order. And this is what it means to believe in the Trinity, to cultivate a way of life in accordance with the womb of life. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.